This is SciX, the Systemic Psychedelic Podcast. Welcome and hello to a new episode of our podcast. Let me first give a little bit of background. SciX is a multidisciplinary platform. We future fit leadership, innovation and global systems with a purposeful application of science-backed psychoactive technologies. By psychoactive technologies we mean both endogenous means such as meditation and breathwork and exogenous means such as psychedelic substances and neurostimulation. We're especially fascinated by psychedelics because of the recent upsurge of public attention and scientific research in relation to these compounds. Our guest today is Stephen Reed. Stephen Reed is a cooperative technologist and a cultural change maker. He's currently a co-director of Dendelion Collective, the not-for-profit worker cooperative behind the Psychedelic Society, which he founded in 2014, the lead developer of Dendelion Earth, the co-creator of Don't Go Back to Normal and a contributor to Inspiral. Cool, so, so thanks very much for joining us on the podcast today. Yeah, it's my pleasure. <laughs> and um, I would actually like to start with a question that's setting the scene for the rest of the interview. And I know that you have a very intriguingly multifaceted background with some background in science, but also in um, politics to some extent. So I would be very curious to hear about your view on the current state of the world and what you think are the greatest challenges that we're facing at the current time. Well, clearly, the day we're recording this, we're still in the midst of the coronavirus pandemic, which presents some very immediate challenges. particularly it seems to the poorer countries of the globe who are just much less well equipped you know to to deal with these kinds of things who already have weaker healthcare systems and populations that might not be quite as healthy to begin with so a lot of the focus has been on what's happening in europe and the us but actually i think one way or another you know europe and us and the rich countries are going to be fine and um, I, I, I hope and pray that uh, there's still enough energy and compassion in these rich countries to help uh, the poorer countries like get through these um, these times when the virus really hits there. Um, and of course, the climate and ecological crisis has has not gone away. And it's, it seems strange to think that just a few months ago that was kind of all we were hearing about. Uh, and uh, yeah, groups like Extinction Rebellion and Greta leading the school strikes had done an amazing job of really putting that back front and center of the political debate. And uh, it's going to be very curious to see the interaction between these two things. Um, and of, of course, it just it just has to be that we take coronavirus as as an opportunity to totally rethink uh well let's say the, the the kinds of work that are done in society the kinds of industries that we do allow to operate and 
uh, and basically for some of the industries that are currently closed to just never reopen them. That seems to be the obvious way forwards. Um, so in, yeah, they're the two which are currently are on my mind or have been on my mind, but, um, we could say also that the, identify the mental health crisis, you know, depression and, and anxiety, the number one cause of disability worldwide at this point. Uh, we could uh, yeah, also point to other intersecting environmental crises. So it, it would be great if, if climate change was the only environmental problem we had to deal with, but as the mm. people like the Stockholm Resilience Center point out, actually, yeah, we, we are pushing environmental boundaries in a, in a whole host of different ways suggesting that something is is deeply and fundamentally wrong hmm. um, and uh, yeah, i'm very uh, i get a lot from charles eisenstein's analysis where he says there is there is something fundamentally wrong and it's we we have this story of separation that we see ourselves as as fundamentally separate from one another and from the natural world and for as long as that story persists then uh, all, for, all attempts at environmental protection and activism will be in some sense futile actually i've, I've, I've been I was rereading uh, lsd my problem child by albert hoffman who of course was the discoverer of lsd and who's the human who had the first intentional lsd trip 70, almost 77 years ago in preparation for an event this weekend and he actually wrote wrote very eloquently on this topic um you know this is probably 20 years ago this book came out mm. um and he said he says very explicitly and in stronger terms than i've heard most people say he says you know environmental protection is 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 hopeless he says with, without uh, a, a deeper shift in how we we view ourselves relative to one another and and the natural world and i, I think he's basically right but we, in a few days time we're going to be putting this question to a uh, host of luminaries from the psychedelic scene and also uh, Gail Brebrook, the founder of Extinction Rebellion. And I'm sure some interesting debate will be generated around that. Mm, thanks. Actually, one thing that would interest me um, in particular is your perspective um, with regards to the systems aspect of that, because I know that you're quite interested in very systemic approaches. So if you could share anything from yeah, on you, anything on the these issues that you've just mentioned from a systems perspective? Mm -hmm. Well, the thing that's coming up, or a systems concept that's coming up for me right now, and it's very apparent right now, is is the fragility of of the very complicated systems that we've built. Complicated but not complex. This is a distinction that happily more and more people are becoming familiar with a car or an airplane or the modern economy is is complicated it's, it has many different parts and they are connected in a often very precise and intricate ways but it's it's, it's mostly not that complex uh and the, the <laughs> i mean Complex systems are typically self-organizing, uh, often have self-healing properties. Um, I mean, life is the uh, really the, the best example of a, a, a complex system. 
and we are seeing that uh, yeah the the many of our of the systems that we've created are don't have a lot of resilience built in and it doesn't it, it it doesn't take much of a shock to to totally throw the system into another state um, and how how might this look instead i mean if we had if instead we had uh well let's start with food systems where we were obtaining all of our food much more locally people would not be nearly so worried if suddenly we couldn't import food from another part of the world but as it is we depend on you know farms half the world away to for our even for our basic staples so people are rightly concerned when it seems like global supply chains are, are closing down uh, another example might be governance itself that if we had more decentralized forms of governance then uh, we would likely have seen a greater variation and experimentation in different techniques for handling the crisis and um, I mean to some extent this has happened in the United States but not, not least because the federal government's response was so poor that, that states and cities had to take they end up making their own decisions on how to handle this and then there was a kind of learning that went on within the system this this capacity for for learning i guess is another important uh, characteristic of many complex systems um so actually that that kind of did come to the fore in the u.s context <coughs> at least hmm. and it's uh, I mean, some, it seems to me some sort of mainstream commentators have, have caught onto this this fact and are uh, and are questioning globalization, economic globalization, from a complexity perspective, which is which is relatively new. Um, most the, the critiques of the of the last couple of decades have mostly centered around economic justice, which I think is totally reasonable. Uh, way to enter that debate um, but yeah what does this 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 intricate interreliance on um, one another what is what exactly is that uh, yeah, what effect does that have when things don't quite go right and I've I've heard it said that actually from a, a, a colleague of mine the, the New Economics Foundation some years ago that we're only seven meals from anarchy that you can imagine the uh, um, well supermarkets carry enough stock for around seven meals per person in the population or something like this so imagine that uh, suddenly there were we couldn't import fossil fuels since of course our whole you know, all supply chains still rely on fossil fuels and that's you know it seems crazy but actually it, it's and, fossil, and hap, you know fortunately fossil fuels are one of the things that still are getting through even at this time of pandemic but if there was a, a kind of greater shock and they and they couldn't get through then uh it it would be a very short space of time indeed before there was i mean and i mean i think you know anarchy this is used in a kind of negative sense of course there is much more positive <laughs> anarchy as well many, many of which I'm, I'm very interested in but in this kind of like uh, yeah and anarchic as in just chaotic and um rather uh, potentially rather harmful sense um 
and I'm, I'm, I'm sure we can do better. Like the, it's, 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 we, there are plenty of fields that do understand resilience and learning systems and self-healing systems and so on. Um, and perhaps it's time for more economists and sort of mainstream politicians and political parties to take a look at fields like permaculture, for example, that um, many people think if you, if you don't haven't studied it deeply, think of it as just, oh, it's just gardening, right? It's just, but actually like permaculture principles run extremely deep and can be applied in all kinds of different areas of life. And, um, I'm not so, I'm not so familiar with the literature on permaculture, permacultural economics, but I'm pretty sure it's out there. <laughs> So I'm looking forward to more of these ideas uh, entering the mainstream at this time. Mm, thanks. Um, <clears throat> another aspect um, that I know you're quite interested in and you've also written a bit about is technology and especially the more avant-garde technology that's currently developing. What do you think is the potential of that to solve some of these issues that we've talked about and what are also the limitations of that? Yeah, yeah, I'm very interested in DAOs, decentralized autonomous organizations, or actually a kind of spin on them that I've, that's called DISCOs, which are um, distributed cooperative organizations. Essentially the same technology, just with some different kind of emphases in a political sense. But, and yeah, these platforms exist now, things like Aragon, like DAOstack, like Colony. They are there's there's not really any examples of organizations that have using them kind of at scale at this point but essentially the reason why they are interesting to me is because they well i would say first they they're mostly focused on participatory budgeting right now and they allow participatory budgeting without admins without centralized control um, in in an arrogant DAO, for example you can you can load it with cryptocurrency it supports all kinds of different cryptocurrencies and and set it up in such a way that there's there's no possibility of that that money those resources escaping the DAO without a democratic vote of all of the participants of that DAO. And it takes it like sometimes it, it requires a bit of a kind of meditation on that phrase to sort of really get its uh, its significance because we're so used to oh but kind of you know isn't there someone somewhere who can like has access to the back end of the database who can just like flick a switch or you can't you just like write to you know click write to the su arrogant support and just uh, and say oh sorry I've messed this up could you send <laughs> could you send it back to me. No, it's not. It's nothing like that. It's like you know, by the by the power of mathematics, cryptography, uh, it is impossible to for those resources to, to kind of leave that system again without this some proposal being voted on in a democratic way, and that's it, kind of scary and kind of exciting. <laughs> means you don't, uh, means you I mean you have, means you have to be really careful at this point with all blockchain technology like kind of by it's a it's a technology which is assumes sovereignty if you like and competence it doesn't leave much room for 
people messing things up or like forgetting things it's like you've, you know you've, you've got to get that down <laughs> um but the um which is different and because many people are used to feeling like they can forget passwords and like lose bank cards or whatever and just ring up their bank and like it's kind of fine but um, but in exchange for that greater level of responsibility then it, what you get is uh, a certain level of like uncorruptibility and yeah and resilience in the system um what do i mean by that it means if like this if any one person in the dow uh you know it happens not to be available anymore then it's kind it's kind of not that big a deal um it's like it doesn't like there's no one person that his his needs to remember the password or to um like <laughs> press you know, like you know press go on to actually make those flows of resources happen so it's um and to be fair, there are systems that kind of work on these principles that are, have not been using blockchain or distributed ledger technology um, even up to now. Like, um, let's see, what's the system that Inspiral are using? Um, CoBudget, that's right. Yeah, so CoBudget is essentially the same kind of technology, but it's not based on decentralized databases. It's still using a centralized database. So although the... Um, Although the users can't really uh, or have no no more power than one another, because it's based on centralized database. In principle, someone could go to the, the creators of the software code budget and say, "Hey, we've we've messed this up. Would mm. you would you please please like go you know revert our <laughs> our code budget group or something?" And in print and they they probably you know like don't don't know if they would, but in principle they could. But the point is with DAOs, like even in principle, it's, it's impossible for for anyone, including the creators of the software, to like to mess with it. Yeah. Uh, and I think in that sense, it's going to be a very good fit for decentralized movements. I've hit Extinction Rebellion, for example, was speaking about starting a and what it might be many DAOs for like different different areas. Um, uh, different project areas that maybe sort of loaded with different with where their funds instead of being distributed to one budget holder as is i believe is currently the case now would instead be put into the dow and then it'd be all the participants of that area of the organization would then decide how those funds are spent uh, and it, and it's gonna it, it will it's a bit of a challenge really to organizations that like to think of themselves as democratic and decentralized it's like it you know put put your money where your mouth is like i do you 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 talk a good game about decentralization and teal and like you know horizontal organizing but are you are you actually willing to put your money in a system where you know like there yeah there is by design there's no such thing as an admin or a leader and Mm -hmm. i i think in it's going to be very interesting to see how the process goes. I expect in that, in really contemplating that some organizations that have been heading that way might choose, say, think, well, no, well, I mean, we're not quite ready and this isn't how we want to <laughs> um, make these kinds of decisions. And that's not, that's not necessarily a problem. I think, you know, not every organization needs to be a decentralized organization. I do think the world will benefit from a much greater percentage of organizations that are working in this way. Um, not least due to some of the reasons we were talking about before uh, resilience and mm. and anti-fragility and so on yeah yeah thanks and i would now like to switch to a different type of technology that often people don't even perceive as technology which is 
psychoactive technologies. And by that, I mean anything from meditation and breath work to psychedelics. Mm -hmm. And I'd like to hear first, what's your personal and professional link to that? And then also, how do you see do these link to potential um, system-based system issues that we're facing? Huh. So my link to it is... Well, I had my first psychedelic experiences around 2012 and became fascinated with psychedelic compounds and, and plants and ended up setting up the Psychedelic Society in 2014, which is still one of the most active grassroots psychedelic organizations globally. Uh, I, yeah, so I've, I've used and benefited from psychedelic compounds and plants for a number of years now. And uh, though they stimulated an interest in other psychoactivating technologies, as you might say, uh, stimulated an interest in meditation, um, yeah, and breath work, mm. and I, I, I would say certainly I find these things very complementary. That um, I think it's 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 very useful to talk about psychedelic practices or psychoactivating technologies beyond simply psychedelic substances and i believe they've contributed to helping me become a healthier happier wiser human being and the the research suggests that that indeed can be the case for many people who are engaging in these practices and using these technologies in a thoughtful way and I'm, I'm sure that they are going to become a major part of wellness systems if you like in the 21st century I say wellness to distinguish uh, uh, to make the distinction between current healthcare systems which is which is so often focused on uh, a curative systems are, are, you know are waiting until someone gets ill and then they're curing mm. some pathology and i think it'll be a very useful shift and actually seems quite relevant to the current covid crisis even to to shift to more preventative systems based on ongoing wellness um, there's probably you and others have read or heard about that many people that are dying from covid are, have underlying health conditions which, which to me raises the obvious point of like, well, okay, look, one big part of uh, dealing with these kinds of viruses over the mediums long term is simply to have healthier populations such that like it's not such a big deal if people get coronavirus because they're much less likely to die because they're much healthier in the first place. And, um, and psychedelics and other psychoactivating technologies can be a part of that in the context of holistic healthcare, that seeing that the, the care of the body and care of the mind are not separate. And that if someone is, uh, is depressed um, and we consider them having mental health issues in some way, they're very likely that's gonna have an impact on their physical health, leaving aside the impact that of various that various pharmaceutical drugs might actually have more directly on their physical health and their risk for developing certain diseases. Um, 
but if we can yeah if we can use these technologies to improve people's mental health then that is seems uh, clear to me that that would very likely come with improvements in physical health which would then uh, be protective against uh, in the kinds of situations that we we find ourselves in now mm, thanks another point related to psychoactive technologies is that i was wondering about your thoughts on on the one hand the clear benefits when you look at people like francis crick who um, discovered the dna on lsd if we can believe that that's true or people like a uh, brad Roke who got some of her inspiration for extinction rebellion from her psychedelic experiences but then on the other hand also some some remarks such as that psychedelics are non-specific amplifiers which sounds first of like a very neutral perspective on them so where do you see the potential specifically for innovators and leaders and where do you think does that notion of non-specific amplifiers fit with regards to that yeah i'm very um fond of this description of psychedelics and actually yeah it can be applied to other psychedelic practices um, that they're extremely contextual substances and uh, the, the, yeah, the, the set and setting that they used is key to determining what kind of effects they will have. Now, it's, so people that have used them for, uh, or, or there are plenty of interesting stories of people using them for cre creative activities. So you mentioned Francis Crick and Steve Jobs is another famous one who said taking LSD was one of the most important things he did in his life. Those are a couple of examples of actually I'm not sure about Francis Crick. I thought it was, I thought I know it's more, it's more certain that Kerry Mullis, the inventor of the polymerase chain reaction, did take it, and maybe possibly Francis Crick. But anyway, the point being is that most of the people that are experienced creative breakthroughs using these substances are already creative. And so like that is that is the context in which they're taking it. And probably they have, you know, have been dreaming about how to create, a, you know, an amazing new computer or how to develop a, an amazing new way of like replicating DNA even before they took this thing. It's not like the it's not like they took it and it's like, OK, oh, suddenly, wow, like kind of download with, on a topic I've never uh, contemplated before. But, yeah, there's there's good evidence showing they can they can take can catalyze fantastic new ideas and we understand some of that of what's in the, the, the brain systems level now from seeing how these substances can encourage communication between areas of the brain that aren't usually in communication and connected um, there's uh, and so there's there's that's a, there's a kind of individual contextual level, but and there's also the societal contextual level. You might say so. It's at this point, unless you've been hiding under a rock, then you you know pe people are aware that we are in the midst of a climate and ecological crisis, and uh, it so. That being the case, when people are having psychedelic experiences, that is that's one of the things that's being amplified. Is is something that I'm observing. That uh, 
including in people that maybe weren't even previously that concerned with it because they, they they still exist in you know in this culture and, and still exist in a kind of media environment where that on some level that message has got through even if they haven't really wanted to look at it directly and um and yeah that's there's also something interesting there about how even mm, you might say chemical or synthetic psychedelics can bring about changes in view on nature and the natural world. I think it's still the case and research is showing that the plant and mushroom psychedelics can be particularly effective at changing people's uh, or promoting pro-environmental behavior and changing people's uh, relationship with the natural world. But, but LSD can as well and, uh, and other synthetic psychedelics can as well. And that kind of makes sense from the, sense of, from the perspective that with uh, using a plant or mushroom psychedelic, there's, there's that, that further piece of context. Of a, even if you haven't, at some point in the trip, even if you haven't contemplated too deeply before, it's like, wow, imagine I'm eating a mushroom. I'm eating, I'm, I've just, inge- <laughs> I've just, in, I've just, inge- just ingested <laughs> a living thing. And it kind of maybe in, it's, it's one more invitation hmm. to consider life and and just the um yeah the 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 wealth the richness the possibility of of life in all of its forms Mm, thanks actually the last point that you were making about the plants um reminds me of another perspective that i also wanted to talk about and that's that of specific communities and that psychedelic field or not just psychedelic but um psychoactive field and if you look at some communities like more indigenous cultures they do believe in plant spirits and and um you know they have a very different way of relating to nature and i think that may play a role with regards to how they deal with the environment but then Mm -hmm. you also have other um communities like the psychedelic renaissance in the West, which you're quite involved in with the psychedelic society. So maybe you could speak a little bit about the various cultures and communities around psychedelics and psychoactive technologies and how that relates in any shape to those broader issues. Yeah. Um, So the first thing that comes to mind is that uh, there's a fairly clear divide between indigenous use and modern psychedelic science uh, especially since there was essentially a 30-year break from anyone doing any psychedelic science after lsd and other psychedelic substances were prohibited in the late 60s and early 70s and um, then it wasn't really picked up again until sort of the 2000s so there's I mean, it's not like people totally stop using these substances in the meantime, but there have um, broadly there have been uh, groups that have been, you know, have fairly unbroken use of these substances and mostly, well, in its plant psychedelics and mushroom psychedelics for hundreds, if not thousands of years. And then you've got all the stuff that's happened kind of since 2000, which has mostly come out of universities, but now increasingly is of interest to private companies and uh, venture capital even, yeah. Um, And 
so in the, on the indigenous side of things, um, there are psychedelic traditions across the world. Uh, probably the best known uh, is ayahuasca in South and parts of Central America. Uh, interestingly, there's, there's very little evidence of, uh, of traditional use of psilocybin mushrooms in Europe. Um, which has been a topic of some interest to me. Like, well, how come? You know, how, if surely people were using mushrooms, you know, <laughs> uh, before, before just the sixties or whatever. But mm. there's there's really very little evidence mm. um, to suggest that they were. It's not saying they. It's not saying that people weren't. It's just saying there's no there's no evidence. Mm. So, um, and uh, I would I would love to meet. Uh, a druid who who tells me that they come from an unbroken line of druids that have been holding psilocybin mushroom ceremonies <laughs> in you know devon where i live in southwest england for hundreds of years but and it hasn't happened yet maybe i, just, <laughs> maybe I need to dig a little bit deeper. Uh, and then on the modern psychedelic science and research side of things i suppose you can the main division you can make there is the well let's just do it by three you've got the uh, yeah, psychedelic science coming out of universities. You then have an uh, increasingly lively uh, sector of modern psychedelic retreats, uh, which is one of the things that my organization, the Psychedelic Society, is involved with. That in, we, well, partly in the context of there being no kind of surviving psilocybin tradition in Europe, we, in 2016, we started offering psilocybin assisted retreats that take place in the Netherlands where psilocybin truffles are legal. And those combine elements of indigenous ceremony from elsewhere in the world with modern psychedelic science. Um, for example, we use the, the music, the playlist that is, is used in the studies for psilocybin and depression that was created by Imperial College London in those retreats. Yet yeah, we're also, you know, uh, there with the, the sage and the Palo Santo and meditation <laughs> and, the, and the prayer at different at other, at other points. Yeah. Um, and there's there's kind of like at least a dozen organisations globally offering these kinds of retreats now, where they're not making any claim that you know they're very clear that this is like a new new thing. They're not making any claim to some tradition in a way that uh, many ayahuasca communities do, that most, most groups serving ayahuasca like, will say that they are working in some lineage um, that typically has its roots in, in South America, even if that has evolved somewhat over time. Um, and yeah, the third group I was gonna mention in the context of like kind of modern psychedelic scene yeah, it's just this, this new wave of psychedelic businesses, corporations, even some of whom have already raised millions of pounds in funding. And, and some of those um, uh, companies are in a similar space to the, what I just mentioned in kind of offering psychedelic assisted retreats. Some of them are uh, on, on very different kinds of stuff. For example, what's one thing I saw like there's, 
scientists have discovered how uh, uh, genetically engineered uh, bacteria to obviously it's yeast yeah some some kind of microorganism to produce psilocybin this is a similar way to how the bulk of the, of the world's insulin is produced mm. in that that uh, we, some years ago we genetically engineered a bacteria so that we could just you know feed it sugars and it would poop out insulin which is it's it's just uh has been a huge benefit to diabetic people worldwide mm. and uh apparently a similar kind of thing is possible with psilocybin now which enables psilocybin to be wow. produced at much greater quantities or like efficiency than grow mushrooms who wants mm. to grow who, who wants to grow mushrooms when you can simply kind of like, mm. like have like you know sort of feed, put some sugar in like a jar yeah. of bacteria you know so so there are um and it's yeah that i mean and then that touches on the question of um, what the difference between, or is is there is there is there benefit in, or what are the benefits of the whole plant or whole mushroom mm. experience versus extracted or synthesized versions of the psychedelic compounds? And famously, Maria Sabina, who was the the mushroom curandera, mushroom shaman, who was discovered by Gordon Wasson on his trip to Mexico in the late sixties and um, who had like kept the, or was one of the people who had kept the traditional knowledge of psilocybin mushrooms in Mexico going throughout the, um, through the generations. She was later offered synthetic psilocybin by Albert Hoffman, who pe many people know was the kind of, discoverer of LSD, he actually was the first person to, I think, isolate and synthesize psilocybin as well, which is, yeah, smart guy. Anyway, he, he, he offered synthetic psilocybin to Maria Sabina, and she said that there's not really any difference I can communicate with the same mushroom people. Mm. <laughs> um, so, which, just, which was fascinating to me, but for all these people that say, like, you know, the spirit of, talk about the spirit of the plant, the spirit of the mushroom, you know, it's only, in, it's only in the mushroom and like, you don't want to be taking synthetic LSD or psilocybin because, you know, there's no spirit, but actually, Maria Sabina, at least, um, <laughs> beg, beg to differ. And she certainly seems like uh, some kind of authority on this for me. But um, I've, I have an open mind with regards to uh, plant spirit or the plant spirit interpretation of psychedelic experience i think it can be enormously helpful i certainly found it helpful to the point of necessity in my first experiences with ayahuasca during a dieta with the shipibo community in peru um, and and it can also be overdone i think um so i would encourage anyone coming into this you know or having psychedelic experiences to hold take an interest in these different interpretations and hold them all lightly and see what seems most helpful and beneficial to you at, you know, at any one time or at different points in your life. But, and have respect for them all. Like have respect for, particularly depending on context. Like if you're, if you're drinking ayahuasca with the people community, it's respectful and probably you know, optimal and most helpful to to adopt this plant spirit interpretation of psychedelic experience. Um, equally, I think many psychedelic scientists and much, much modern psychedelic science is worthy of our respect and 
it can be really helpful to understand the what's happening with 5-HT2A receptors in the brain and you know the hyperconnectivity across <laughs> different brain regions um, at, at other times or in other contexts as well and that's what's so exciting about this field is that yeah there's so many different uh, ways in so many different ways of mm. really understanding it mm, yeah yeah thanks also for sharing that bit about the plant spirit i think i mean more so than in the case of psilocybin is even more important or um meaningful maybe with regards to ayahuasca and iboga which are more endangered plants right and if um this becomes more mainstream i think there the the aesthetic solutions might even be more important to to make sure that the plants aren't Mm-hmm. overused yeah um but yeah the last question that i wanted to ask you before we end this interview was um it's more of a you know, spontaneous association question everybody has certain complexities in their life what they see in the world that they are most passionate about solving and looking into so what is for you the most pressing and most um the kind of complexity in the world that that's closest to your heart and that you would want to work on and solution solve it's it's possible i would answer this question differently sort of each day it was put to me but what's coming to me right now is enough a lesson of enough uh, that and and something that's really of these times that mm, we've been forced to slow down and for, for many of us for most of us at least to, to deal with having less yet for many of us for sure not all we are still finding that it is enough and that so much of the extra trappings of modern life and consumerism and and entertainment culture are unnecessary in 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 an important way and in in seeing that they're unnecessary and seeing that actually what we need to be healthy and happy is quite basic really you know like we need to eat well and we need access to the outdoors and we need to well have pay adequate attention to the wastes that we're putting into the environment and of course that uh, with in an immediate sense that looks like trash or kind of building up outside properties as refuse collections are delayed and so on but it's also fundamentally it's the, it's the same issue with fossil fuels it's that we are we're kind of mindlessly dumping carbon into the atmosphere thinking that it's you know whatever we can forget about it or it's someone else's problem but um but yeah if there was Uh, my my great hope is that one of the lessons from these times is that we see 
that we already have enough in so many ways. And that actually is that uh, that's the other side of the coin to abundance is that um, abundance I mean, can be about producing more, will, will be about in, in producing more of some things. Um, but it, it, it's also about having less or being, being okay to, to have less. And yeah, as I said, closer to the start of the conversation, what, like, what if so many of the industries and businesses that are currently closed simply never reopen? thinking that we we just we just don't need we're just not interested in them anymore we just <laughs> um, we've we found simple simpler but actually more satisfying ways to live and i just i feel i have to put in a footnote here of like just saying i i my heart is also with the the multitudes of, on the on the earth right now who have less than enough who and and where, where that situation is only going to be made more acute due to the coronavirus um, pandemic uh, and say and it, it's it's uh, one of the businesses that is doing very well in the current times of course is, is amazon <laughs> uh, jeff bezos the world's richest man becoming like just unfathomably richer by the day and to to say that to become content with having enough does not mean ignoring the fact that we have created a society where a tiny number of people can become obscenely rich like and that we i think the right attitude towards in businesses like amazon is to say wow thank you like you've created something amazing your logistics capabilities are just you know we could never have imagined thank you and now it's time to recognize that what you have created has essentially become a public utility and should be taken under some kind of public common cooperative ownership um I think for Facebook, that's true as well. Thank you, Mark Zuckerberg. You've, you've helped create something amazing to the extent to which we all rely on it. And on that basis, it's time to, to hand it over to the people so we can actually make collective decisions on how to use this amazing technology for the good of all humankind rather than to further enrich a tiny Silicon Valley minority further. And the 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 most, the happiest and most peaceful way of, of, I can imagine this occurring is simply for these people and, and you know, many of the, the super rich in this world to realize these things for themselves and simply to give, give these things away, to choose to put their companies into some kind of like common cooperative public ownership. It doesn't have to be a fight. And it could well be that psychedelics and other psychoactive technologies and experiences will play a very important role in helping to change the minds, change the perspectives of some of the richest and most powerful people on this planet to help them see that we're all in this together and that the, yeah, none of us are free until all of us are free.
and that they have a, a unique opportunity to um, to bring about a level of freedom and abundance on this planet like we've never witnessed yeah that's okay <laughs> oh wow <laughs> what a wow very beautiful and philosophical and very summarizing reply thanks for that for that my pleasure um and yeah so that was my last question for you and i would like to thank you again for being on our podcast today and wish you all the best <laughs> and a beautiful weekend <laughs> Lovely speech you again soon. Yeah, take care. Thank you for listening to SciX, the Systemic Psychedelic Podcast.